Um, today we're closing out our Christmas series called Christmas Playlist, The Road Home. And what we've been doing is, is walking through the secret history of these magi. These wise men called the magi, they were ancient priests of Babylonian, Babylon, and they were Babylon, and they were ancient priests of Persia. And they were probably the most unexpected group of people that Mary thought would make it to her doorstep, through her doorway, and, and bow down at the feet of Jesus. And it's because these magi had a very strange and crooked spiritual past, but they held on to one truth that had been passed down for 650 years, that there would be a king who would come, who would be the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and that Mary looked on as they bowed down and worshiped Jesus. The very first people in the gospel of Matthew were these magi. So the question is, how did they find themselves at the foot of Jesus? Here's the answer. 650 years earlier, they were appointed a new king. Not a new king, a new chief. The chief magi. His name was Daniel. Daniel from the Old Testament. The prophet Daniel. And Daniel would have taught all of these magi this truth in the Old Testament about a coming king. And this would have been the pinnacle of truth that they would have been searching for because the whole job of Magi was to appoint kings and train them. And so they were searching for the ultimate one. And what we've been doing is tracing the story of Daniel and his friends, how he created this movement within this group called the Magi that would one day cause them to take this spiritual pilgrimage it was 800 miles long to the foot of Jesus and there worship him. And today in our story, we see the veil lifted. And what we find is that God is in control of absolutely everything. He really is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Today we're looking at this famous story of the writing on the wall. This phrase that you hear people say all the time, oh, it's the writing on the wall. That comes from our story today. And that phrase is often referred to as something of doom. And it is. Unless you know the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and you bow to Him and worship Him. Otherwise, it is a statement of doom. But if it's not a statement of doom because you have bowed down to him, then it's actually a statement of freedom. It's a statement of redemption. So I want to read to you, I'm going to read to you in Matthew 2, the story of the Magi, and then we're going back 650 years earlier to the story of today, that day. Matthew 2, 1 through 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, and that days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. They were saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. 650 years earlier, in Daniel, then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed. Mini, mini, tekel, parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Meaning, God has numbered your days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar, 
gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple, and a chain of gold was put around his neck. And the proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in all the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Now, I've got to give you some background here. So our first point is we're going to look at the background that led up to this point. Daniel and his three friends and many others, they were in Jerusalem. They were Jews. And an evil king came in named Nebuchadnezzar, uprooted all of God's people from Jerusalem, sent them out, and many of them were exiled to Babylon. So the question is, why and how did this happen? Because this would have been an absolutely tragic event. That's like us being at war with another country. And they invade our country, they destroy us, and they take half of us in this room, and half of all the country, and they bring them back to to their country. So we're in the land of our enemies, and they're forcing us to learn all their ways, to adopt their culture, and become like them. It would have been absolutely tragic. So the question is, how and why would God let that happen to his people? And the answer is a very important answer, one that we should think hard about. God's people went off on rebel roads. They were rebelling from him. They wanted nothing to do with God. The way that Jeremiah says it is God's people spread their legs to the gods of other nations. And so God uprooted them, but he uprooted them for their good. Because whenever God disciplines his people, he's doing it out of a deep compassion and a tender love for them so that they might turn back to him. This is what God does. When you get off on rebel roads and you're running right towards hell and you're on these hellish roads, he makes you stumble, he makes you trip, he makes you fall so that you will look up and say, who did that? And he will say, it was me. Come back home. What are you doing? It's out of a deep love that he does this for his people. And the reason that this evil king is doing what he's doing in bringing Daniel and his friends to Babylon is he's attempting to assimilate a foreign group of people into the ways, the Babylonian ways. And it's a genius way to make all of the world Babylonian. So Daniel shows up with his three friends, and this king says, you will be trained underneath the ways of the Magi. This is this king assimilating Daniel. And what happens is God orchestrates the series of events that causes Daniel to be the chief magi of all the magis. And it's then that Daniel gets to work and he starts telling all these magi about a coming king of kings and lord of lords. And this would have been everything for them because their main job is to search out kings. And at some point, this Nebuchadnezzar, this evil king, comes to Daniel with another dream. And he asks Daniel to interpret it. And Daniel says, all right, here's what it's saying, great king. God is about to humble you because of your pride, because you think you have done this on your own, but God's hand has been at work in all of it. And God is the one who raised you up so that you might uproot his own people so that they might go back to him. And he's about to bring you under, or he's about to bring you down because your, your arrogance is so high. And the king says, ah. So years later, he goes on and he's bragging about how great he is. And then God makes him turn mad. 
He goes crazy. He starts acting like an animal. His fingernails get really long. His hair is all mangy. And then like that, God brings him back. And this evil king Nebuchadnezzar realizes this is the work of Daniel's God. So he says there is no God like Daniel's God. Eventually, Nebuchadnezzar dies and his son takes his place. His son's name is Belshazzar. He's worse than Nebuchadnezzar. Not because he's taking over countries, but because he's a privileged young king and he's known for throwing elaborate parties. And that's saying a lot because the Babylonians have always been throwing these elaborate parties. And there is this greatest party that he throws, the party of all parties. Thousands of the elders are invited. There's the elite there. And there, in this party, as they're having this grand time, a hand appears and starts writing three words on the wall. And Belshazzar freaks out. In, in the Hebrew, it, he could have actually wet himself because of how freaked out he was. So he doesn't know what to do. And at this point, Daniel has been forgotten because King Nebuchadnezzar has died. But Belshazzar's mom, so his mom comes to his rescue and says, hey, Daniel can help us out here. So Daniel is called in and they say, Daniel, what does this mean? And he says, okay, I will tell you. You know the story of your father, how he went mad because of his arrogance. And you should have known better than to have this elaborate party where you're taking the vessels of God's temple, these cups of gold and silver, and you're using them, and then you're offering praise to the gods of gold and silver. These are God's vessels. What are you doing? And because of it, you have been weighed, you have been measured, and you've been found wanting. Dude, it's over. You're out. That very night, the Persians come in, they take over, and this king dies. All right, so what are we supposed to learn from this story on Christmas? Well, here's your answer. Second point, God is king. There is but one God, and all other kings must bow to him as the greater king. And don't try to take his place, and anyone that does, he will uproot. Christmas time is God's assault on every single throne that stands between him and his people. And the infinite infant has come to uproot all other kings. So that's what the Magi are doing. They're looking for this great king. No matter what king there is in this earth, he is not in control. There is one king who is in control, and it is God. And God's people would have heard this message while they were in exile, and it would give them comfort to say, okay, God is still in control, God is still king over all things. And the same message is true for us, because the Christian life is a life of exile. So the words we hear here are, it is okay, God is still king, take comfort, take courage, take peace. He's in control of everything. He knows absolutely everything that's happening to your life to the second, and he is holding authority over absolutely all of it. Whatever's happening in your life, God is orchestrating for good. And the fight of faith is to believe that's true. That he is good, that he is wise, that he's loving, that he's absolutely in control of everything. And he is fighting for you and fighting for your good. And he knows you better than you know yourself and he knows what is best for you. And Daniel, at any moment 
could have said, God, why in the world are you doing this to me? And perhaps he does, but nothing in our story is showing that he does. What's showing in our story is he is a man of relentless faith that keeps trusting that no matter what the situation in exile is, God is still in control. And you might spend the rest of your life trying to come to terms with that truth because it is a hard pill to swallow. But it's good. And if you will come to that truth, it's going to change the way that you live your life. And you're going to see everything that he's doing and you're saying, I'm going to trust that this is for my good. And, and, and that's a hard pill to swallow, but I'm going to tell you this, if you don't swallow the pill, then your life is going to start to feel more and more hellish because it's going to feel like everything bad that's happening to you has no purpose behind it. There's no good behind it. There's no love behind it. But if you will trust that God's in control, then there's going to be purpose, there's going to be meaning, there's going to be love, and there's going to be care behind everything that's happening in your life. And he, God, has given you the life that he has given you to use for good, whether it's a difficult life or an easy life. And he is teaching you how to use the life that he's given you. So here's the question. How are you using the life that he's given you? And how are you using what he has given you? Third point, use your treasures well. So this evil king... Belshazzar, he had access to all the goods in the temple of God, and he takes it and he uses it for his lavish parties, and while the parties are happening, he's offering praise to the gods of gold and silver and bronze and wood. That's how he used his life, his status, and his treasures. What I am suggesting is that there is a very high likelihood that all of us are not using our life the way we ought to be. And there's a very high likelihood that all of us are not using the treasures that God has given us the way we ought to be using them. Think through everything that you have, whatever it might be, whether it's a lot or a little, whether you have like a bunch of kids and you're like, I have nothing. Think through what you have and ask how you're using it for God. If you say, I have nothing, Jesus took a few pieces of bread and some fish and feed and feed thousands of people. And he could do the same thing with you in your life if you will take everything that you have and place it before him and say, God, this is everything that you've given me. How would you have me use it for good? And so you take your house, take your bank account, you take all of your crypto investments, you take all your, car, your cars that you have, you take your hobbies, you take the things that you're good at, you take your life, you take your status, you take your jobs, and you say, God, here it all is, and you just throw it out on the table and say, what do I do with it? You tell me, God. I don't want to tell you how to use this. My prayers, God, are no longer going to be, God, give me this so I can do this, but God, thank you for what you've given me. What do you want me to do with it? Don't misuse what he's given you. Use it for his glory for the good of your neighbor, for the good of your family, for the good of the church, for the good of all the world. And if you use what he's given you and entrust it to him, he will take what he's given you and multiply it. But if you take the very little that you think you have and you guard it and you protect it from God, even that he will take away. Now that was a very spiritual statement and that has eternal th things with it. I can't explain it fully right now, but just you can think on that for a couple years. So look at what the Magi did. 
They took everything they have, the gold, frankincense, myrrh, they took everything, and they gave it to Jesus. They took all the resources that they had at their disposal. They took this 800-mile-long trek. They, brought, they would have brought soldiers with them, cooks with them, servants with them, everything to take this 40-day-long trip to get to Jesus just to bow to him. If you had a 40-day-long vacation, would you use it for a pilgrimage to get to him and bow to him? How would you use your vacations for him? See, in the end, he becomes the Christmas reward, not what he can offer you. What if, instead of obsessing over how much you had or didn't have, you started obsessing over what God has given you and how you might use it for good the way that he would have you use it? With wisdom, his wisdom. You say, well, I don't know how to do that. Just read the Bible. It's in it everything you need to know about how you should live your life and use what God has given you. And at some point, you will have to give an account of how you have used your life and how you have used what he's given you. Fourth point, weighed and measured. So you say, wait, 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 David. I thought God is eternally gracious. He is. Well, can't I just rely on that Yes, you can. But understand this. Those who have seen his grace and tasted his mercy say, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my life. I will bow to you and I will offer my life to you. Tell me what to do with it. So yes, you will always sin. And yes, he is merciful. So chill out for a minute. But then, once you receive that mercy and you receive that grace, you realize something. You ready for it? There is nothing that he can't ask of you. See, if Christianity was about, okay, I have to get to this many units of goodness, and once I get to this many levels of goodness, then I get what God promised me. Well, that's easy and it's difficult because one, you probably never get there, but two, if you did get there, you'd say, okay, God, you owe me. Doesn't sound like love. But if what you actually find is that there you're at the bottom and you have nothing good in you that you can offer God, but he comes down and he offers you grace and he offers you mercy, then what you realize is you just want to offer yourself to him. You are not your own anymore. You have been bought with a price. He is yours. You are his. You're one. And at that point, you say, whatever you do ask of me is good and beautiful, so I want to do it. So while the Magi were weighed and measured, and Scripture seems to find them worthy, this king is weighed and measured and found wanting. Why? Well, the Magi traveled long distances to declare his worth, not their own. So therefore, they become worthy. The king, he would not move a muscle for God. He declared himself worthy, so God humbled him. See, that's the difference. The 40-day trip ended with, you are worthy, God. That's what the Magi say. So they're bestowed with this honor, even this glory, you might say. So this phrase, weighed and measured and found wanting, it means something is emptied. It means there's no substance to it. It's cheap. And when the, Bible's, when the Bible speaks of idols, it calls them empty vessels. If you will not make God your king, you will always remain an empty vessel. Weightless. No glory to you. But if you make him your king, 
you will become far more glorious than you can imagine. Now, okay, what do I mean by that? Because, okay, well, to be glorious means to be weighty. So if you pick something up that you didn't think was heavy and you found it almost too heavy to carry, that means it's heavier than you thought. And that's how the Christian is. They don't look like much. They're the kind of people that bow. They're the kind of people that worship something, like a god. They look weak. And when you try to move them, you find that they're absolutely unmovable. They're unshakable. Because they were once an empty vessel that has been filled with the glory of the Lord. And because they have been filled with the glory of the Lord, they are unmovable, unshakable. Fat with glory and joy and peace. If you want to be unmoved by the kings of the world, by the ways of the world, by your mean boss if you have one, by friends who have hurt you and let you down, by this joy that you can't seem to get hold of, by a peace that you never seem to know, by a broken heart. The only cure for that is to be a worshiper that has become fat with glory. We tend to shy away from calling ourselves glorious, and that's good, you should. All God to be the glory. But as soon as you say that, you're giving him the throne of your heart. And because he's dwelling within you by the Spirit of God, you become weighty. You become more glorious. Seek your own glory and you become an empty vessel like that king. Seek God's glory and you become plump with glory, peace, and life. Now, why is that? Because when he who is glorious gets involved, he starts removing all of the things that you have put on the throne of your heart, and then he starts putting himself there. Fifth point, he removes all the false kings. God became human so that you might become divine. This is what the early church fathers would say. And on Christmas morning, Jesus goes to war with anything that has crept its way to the throne of your heart. Anything that you have made greater than God in your life, God goes to war with it. So while at the same time you are responsible to worship him, at the, at the, at the flip side of the coin is he is in control and doing the things that are necessary so you might be drawn to worship him. Luke eleven twenty, This is Jesus speaking. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, in the Old Testament, demons are often seen as these false gods that people are worshiping. They're seen as idols. And so watch what that means for you. When you make something more important than God, you're putting that thing on the throne of your heart. And that is an idol. But it's also like a demon of the Old Testament. You're giving it power to control your life. And that is a very dangerous thing to do. And so when Jesus says, I'm removing what anything on the throne of your heart that is lesser than me so that I can put myself there and you be, can become more. The Magi understand this very well. They were just underneath the rule of the greatest empire that they had known, the Babylonian Empire. And in one night at a party, they saw they see that kingdom shaken and thrown down to the dirt. And then another one take its place, the Persian Empire. But then, on that Christmas night, they find a king who will build a kingdom that is absolutely unshakable. It's 
So they bow. And it makes them unshakable. And it will make you unshakable. Many of you here are scared in your life. And you're scared because there's a king that's sitting on the throne of your heart that is weak and worthless and empty. But if you will put the true king of kings and the Lord of lords there, he will make you gloriously unshakable. He will comfort you. He will give you peace when it seems like it's impossible. And all of this is because the true king came into the earth to be weighed and measured and found perfect, yet he takes that perfect record and credits to you. Last point. Christ is weighed and measured. The truth is, every single one of us, when we are weighed and measured, we are found wanting. But Jesus has come to be weighed and measured in our place. He's found perfect. He takes his perfect record, credits to us, and then he takes our bad record and he puts it upon himself. Why does he do this? To invite you to his party, to his banquet, to the feast of heaven. While you don't have the status to get into that party, he purchases the card for you to get in. He purchases your way in because he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. So while you don't get the st- have the status to get in, he purchases it by Christmas, cross, and Easter. At Christmas, he comes to declare war with any other king that is not him that's sitting on the throne of your heart, even if it's you. And then at the cross... He's emptied, and he's thrown into the pits of hell, into the wasteland. And then he rises up out of the grave, and he gives you his Holy Spirit, so that now the Spirit of God is dwelling in you, and now the Spirit of God carries you off to the great eternal feast. It's a party that will put any Babylonian party to shame. It isn't filled with people who are empty vessels doing meaningless things, but it's filled with children of God who are plump with joy and peace and life because they have found the king who will give all of that to them. And so they party, you party, eating the best foods, celebrating and dancing as children of God because the king has come. At the end of your life and right now even, Don't offer the Father all that you have done. Offer the Father all that the true King of kings and Lord of lords has done in your place. His record for yours. Rest easy in that truth and watch as the door opens to the banquet and you walk in and enjoy the feast. Let's pray. God, in your might, And in your great power, I pray that your spirit would move us to trust you. That no matter what's happening in our life, you are king, and you are good, and you are loving, and you are compassionate, and you are tender, and you are mighty, and you are just, and you will fight against anything that is not of good in our life. Carry us into the heights of faith. 
so we might live with courage and with might for your glory and your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.